This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Excited that you are with us. We are on week 11 of a series that we are calling The Story. And we started it back in February in the book of Genesis. We're going to end in November at the book of Revelation, hitting the Bible from cover to cover. And our goal is to fully understand God's plan, his upper story, and what he's been doing through history, from the beginning of time, through history till now, and into the future, to the end of time as we know it. What is God's plan and what is he doing in his upper story? And we know that it's all about God's plan to bring humanity back into relationship with him as he originally intended it and created it. So, Quick overview, um, we know that in the beginning, we know that Adam and Eve were created, they were, they were in perfect relationship with God, but unfortunately, they chose a plan different from God's, and this put them in direct opposition to God, and thus, now each of us are born into this world already separated from God from birth, from the get-go. By default, we're separated from God from the moment that we were born. But here's the cool thing about the Bible, the cool thing about the story is it shows the extent that God will go to, to get us back, to get us back. To, he, he's provided a plan. He's provided a way, and it was very costly, we know. And so we've been going through this. We started, like say, in Genesis. We've been going through the Old Testament, and we know that God creates the nation of Israel through whom he would help to accomplish this plan of his. And we know that he would use them to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So I hope you guys have read chapter 11. If you hadn't, be sure and read it later today uh, as, uh, as we're going into the story of uh, King David and kind of a transition in, uh, in, the, in the nation of Israel. But to recap the last couple of weeks, uh, we know that in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel had just received the land that God had promised them hundreds of years earlier. And we know that they experienced Years and years of success. We know the Bible says that no enemy could stand against them and that God was with them and that they prospered. We went on from there to the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we know that a new generation has grown up and they are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And they begin this what, three to four hundred year cycle that we called the sin cycle. They turn their heart away from the Lord. Uh, God removes his hand of protection, they become oppressed by a surrounding nation, and uh, they're conquered by them, and then they finally cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge, and this judge comes in and rescues them and helps to get them back on track, but eventually that judge dies, and the people turn their heart away from the Lord again and do evil in his sight. And so you've got this sin cycle going on. This goes on for a few hundred years, and Israel goes through 12 judges. And then finally, uh, last week, we talked about Samuel. Finally, God raises up Samuel. And Samuel would be a priest, and he would be a prophet, and he would be the final judge of Israel. And he would guide Israel through this transition between the, year, uh, the years of the judges and the years of the kings. So in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we know that the elders of the tribes of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. And we know up to this point, Israel had not had a king. Uh, they, God was their king. They had to trust whoever God raised up to, uh, to lead them. And um, he, they had to trust him. And the problem is that wasn't good enough for him at this point. They wanted a king. And we know that Samuel wasn't happy about this. He knew that it wasn't God's best. He warns them, but the people refused to listen. And so God tells Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And so I, I gave you, uh, real briefly, I, I gave you three uh, sets of characteristics that we saw in Saul. First, we saw that he was tall, handsome, and timid. He was a tall, handsome, kingly-looking guy, but when it came time for him to be anointed, not anointed, but inaugurated as king, he was found hiding amongst the supplies. But we know that Samuel said, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and that's what happened. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and it says that God turned his heart, and he became, the second thing we gave you, he became strong and courageous. He fought against the which ites was it? The Ammonites, I think it was first, uh, that came in and attacked. And um, he rallies 330,000 Israelites, and they go in and they just slaughter these folks, this, this enemy nation that, that attacked them. The problem is Saul starts getting the big head. He starts getting arrogant. He starts thinking he knows what's best. And that was the last thing I mentioned last week. Saul was too busy to worship and too big to obey. 
Samuel had given him a word from the Lord, told him what to do. The Lord had spoken to him and given him some instruction. He didn't obey. He had time to raise up an altar, a monument to himself, but he didn't have time to worship. And he wasn't, he, he made himself, he was too big and too arrogant, too haughty to obey God. And so we concluded with 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 28. It says, so Saul said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who we know is will be David, who is better than you. And this is where we take up in chapter 11 of the story. So if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel. If you have your book, The Story, open it up to chapter 11. And we're going to take off there at chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. If you're reading from the story, it's in verse 145. But here, here's what happens next. So this is, this is the next chapter, okay? Samuel has just told Saul that the kingdom is going to be ripped out of his hands and given to somebody better than him. So in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? He says, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And guys, we know that God chose just the right person to be the next king. It wasn't who everybody else would have chosen. It wasn't who anybody would have expected Guess what? It was a shepherd boy. He's out tending his father's sheep in this little-known country town called Bethlehem. He's out in the hills somewhere tending this flock of sheep. And we know that his name was David. So what in the world does God see in this shepherd boy that makes him want to, to, makes him, want to make him the next king of Israel? What is it about this shepherd boy that God says makes him a better person? He said, somebody's better than you is what he said to Saul. What is it that qualified David? Well, we know the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And, and I actually saw something I hadn't seen before. If you'll turn to me for, with me for just a second, we're going to go to Psalm chapter 78. And I had never seen this before, but it describes perfectly to me why God chose David. And Psalm, and let me mention, by the way, the notes are up on the YouVersion Bible app, so you can follow along like there, on, on there as you normally do. In Psalm chapter 78, verses 70 through 72, it says, He, being God, chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them, who? God's people. God shepherded them with integrity, with skillful hands. He led them. So guys, out here in the middle of nowhere, in the, in the wilderness, the hills, somewhere around Bethlehem, David is tending a flock of sheep. And we know that David loved and he cared for these sheep. Now guys, sheep... I don't know if you've ever been to the petting zoo part of the, of the zoo, of the Memphis Zoo, but them can be some smelly animals, stinky, smelly sheep. Uh, and, and sheep are also known for being stupid. Isn't it interesting that we're called sheep? Anyway, um, <laughs> stinky, smelly, stupid sheep. But David loves them, and he cares for them. He takes care of them. And so we know that on one occasion, we know that a lion runs in and grabs one of the sheep. We know that on another occasion, a bear runs in and grabs one of the sheep. Now, I was thinking about what I would do in that situation. I think if that were me and I was David and a lion just grabbed one of the sheep and ran out, I'd be like, you know what? The lions and the bears got to eat too. I got plenty of sheep left. See ya. Right? Not David. Not David. The Bible says that he went after him. He went, when, a, when a lion came in and grabbed one of the sheep, David went after that lion to rescue that one sheep. When a bear came in and grabbed one of them, David went after that bear to rescue that one sheep. David wasn't afraid. We know that he kills the lion and he kills the bear to rescue the sheep. I think we could agree that David was a good shepherd of sheep. And I think in the midst of this, I think that God knew, God saw how diligent and, and how dedicated David was to this menial task of taking care of these stinky, smelly animals. And he thought, if David can take that good a care of sheep, how much better will he take care of my sheep? How much better will he take care of my people? 
So, you know, I, I'm thinking, what does it mean when he says that David was a man after his own heart? I, I think that to me it means that his heart was aligned. David's heart was aligned with God's. It had the same concerns and thoughts and it had love and compassion. I believe that David loved and he cared for people just like God did. And so if he would risk, if David would risk his life for one sheep, what would he do for God's people? And I think God knew that this was the kind of king that Israel needed at this point. And so when God looked at David, he saw a king. But the problem is that nobody else did. God looked at David and saw a king, but nobody else did. And so I'm going to give you, as I normally do, I'm going to give you three points today. You can follow along with that. I'm going to give you three characteristics that I see of David. Three things I want to mention that I see in David. Number one, I just mentioned others did not see David with the potential of a king. Others did not see David with the potential of a king. And under this point, I'm going to give you, I'm going to mention four people. Four people that did not see a king in David. The first person I want to mention is Jesse, his own father. Jesse did not see a king in David. So we, we had just started in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem. He says, I've anointed, I'm going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So it says that Samuel, he loads up and he comes into town. He comes into Bethlehem and he does this secretly because if you look at it, the Bible says that Samuel's afraid that Saul's going to kill him if he finds out he's anointing a new king. So Saul kinda, Samuel kind of tiptoes into town. It says he brought some cattle with him with the, so that he could give the excuse that he was coming to sacrifice. Uh, but really, he was just coming in undercover so that uh, he wouldn't um, alert, alert Saul. And so he comes into town. He comes to Jesse. He tells Jesse what's going on. I can imagine Jesse is pretty excited. And Jesse lines up his sons. He lines up his sons right in front of, uh, right in front of Samuel. From oldest to youngest, he lines them up. And so you've got seven young men standing here and Samuel walks up to the very first one and he's got his horn of oil and he says okay Lord all right God uh, this is a tall good-looking young man he seems like he's strong his father tells me that he works hard I imagine this is the one you've chosen to be king and God says nope he's not the one Samuel says oh, okay and so he goes over in line and he goes to the next son. All right, Lord. So, so, so this young man, he, he too looks strong and handsome. And, and, and I, I hear that he's got a 4.0 grade average and, and he excels at everything he puts his hand to. And surely you've anointed him to be the next king of Israel. And God says, nope, he's not the one. And we know in the story that Samuel goes all the way down the line to the seventh one and God rejects them all. Now I can only imagine that this has to confound uh, Samuel just a little bit until Samuel remembers and he says wait a minute Jesse didn't you tell me you had eight sons why are there only seven lined up in front of me right now and Jesse says oh yeah well yeah actually we do have one more the youngest he's he's out there taking care of the sheep right now now it's interesting to me that David wasn't even chosen for the lineup the prophet of God comes to Jesse's house and says, line your sons up before me. And David didn't make the cut for the lineup. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think it's that Jesse didn't love David or anything like that. I think that he truly just did not see a king in him. He was the youngest, the less, least experienced, and the last one that they would have thought of. And so I believe that Jesse just simply did not see a king in David. And actually, uh, Max Licato says in one of the commentaries, he says that the Hebrew word that Jesse uses to refer to David is the same word that we would translate runt. So Jesse says, yeah, my, my runt of a son, he's out in the fields. He's taking care of the sheep. I, 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 don't, I don't know why you would need him, but if you want, I can have somebody go fetch him. And Samuel says, we are not going to sit until he is here. It says that. Look it up. It says we're going to stand here and we're going to wait until the last son is brought. And so I can imagine with that somebody's probably some servant or somebody where one of the other sons is running like mad to the fields going to get, uh, going to get David. And uh, with it being a hurry like this and the fact that they're not sitting down, he probably rushes David right on in. And I can only picture, uh, I, I picture David as coming in probably probably sweaty and, and, and smelly and doesn't look, he, he's not dressed up and looking good like his other brothers standing there in line. 
But before David knows it, there's oil running down his head. And he has been anointed the next king of Israel. And there's dispute on how old David was, whether he was 15 or 16 years old, but we know he was either, he was right somewhere at 15 to 16 years old. Could you imagine being a 15 or 16 year old kid and just being anointed the next king of Israel? I don't, I don't know what most teenagers would have been doing at that point. Probably would have been on Amazon trying to order a crown or, or, uh, or, or something like that. But that's not what we see in David. The next moment, as soon as this is all done, guys, David's back in the fields. He's just been anointed king of the whole country, of the nation. But he's back out in the fields taking care of the stinky, smelly sheep again. And I think that tells us a lot about David's journey and, and what he walks through to develop the character and the heart and everything that God sees in him. So the first person that did not see a king in David was Jesse. Second person I want to mention is David's oldest, oldest brother. David's oldest brother. He could not see a king in David. So shortly after this, the Philistines and Israel are at war. And we know the Philistines have a champion. The Bible says he's almost nine feet tall. And he is from Gath. His name is Goliath. And, uh, and he is their champion. And so Goliath issues this challenge. And he says, send a warrior. Send one of your greatest warriors to fight me. If you win, we'll be your servants. But... If we win, you'll be our servants. And so he issues this challenge. Now, David's oldest brother, his older brothers are there at the battlefield because they're soldiers. Um, I imagine David was just too young and he's, he's still tending the sheep in the, uh, in the field. So Jesse one day says, David, take a break and grab this food and take it to your brothers out at the battlefield. So David goes, he goes to the battlefield, and he runs into his oldest brother. And here's the first thing. Here's what we see his oldest brother say to him in chapter 17, verse 28. He says, this is the oldest brother speaking. He says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Can you hear the attitude in that? Where have you left your little flock of sheep? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Can we sense a little animosity between David's oldest brother and David right here? There's a little bit of animosity going on. And I'm pretty sure that David's oldest brother knew that David had been anointed king. Now, now understand, he had been anointed king, but he had not been inaugurated as king. And this anointing of, as king as we said, was kind of a quiet thing. It was kept on the down low because we didn't want to get King Saul's attention in this. He, he wouldn't have tolerated somebody else being anointed king. King Saul wanted his next son to become king. So this is kept quiet. But we know the brothers were lined up there, so I believe the oldest brother knew. I believe he knew that David had been anointed king. And I think that he just can't see the king. He can't see a king in David. He tells David, he says, you're conceited, and you just came to try to see some action. You just came to see the battle. Well, we know that uh, he, tells him, he tells David he needs to go back and, and tend his little flock. But uh, David's brother couldn't have been more wrong. David was not conceited. He was not there just to win the battle. We know that he would single-handedly win this battle uh, for the nation of Israel. So Jesse, his dad, couldn't see a king in him. His oldest brother couldn't see a king in him. Thirdly is King Saul. King Saul. King Saul's desperate. They need somebody to take out Goliath. And you guys know the story. David goes to King Saul and he volunteers to fight Goliath. And look at how Saul views David. In chapter 17, verse 33, it says, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are little more than a boy. And he has been a warrior from his youth. Guys, King Saul looks at David, and it says, and it's in one of, the, one of the New International Version translations, it says that he sees him as little more than a boy. He sees an ordinary teenage boy standing before him. The thing that's comical to me in that is the fact that Saul still lets him go. <laughs> he, see, he sees him as a boy and, and still sends him out to the battle against a giant. Uh, so Jesse doesn't see a king in David. His brother doesn't see a king in him. The, the king, King Saul, doesn't see a king in David. And last, last person I want to mention is Goliath himself. Goliath didn't see a king in David. 
And we know the story. David, David, um, David goes you know, down to the battlefield and, and Goliath looks David over and he too sees somebody that's a little more than a boy. And in verse 43, here's how Goliath first addresses David. He says to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? <laughs> he called David a stick. Guys, you know how this goes. This would be the last time Goliath would refer to David as anything because in about five minutes, his head is going to be separated from his shoulders. The battle's going to be over. It's not going to last any time because David is going to take Goliath out. So we've got four different people here who do not see a king in David like God does. But before I go to my next point, let me mention something interesting. Let me mention one person that can see a king in David. One person that can see a king of David, I believe, is Jonathan. Jonathan. We know in reading, we know that Jonathan was uh, the son of King Saul. And here's the interesting thing. For him to be somebody who can see the king and David, the interesting thing is that Jonathan was heir to the throne. Everything was set up for him. He was being raised and bred to be the next king of Israel. And I believe he's the only one that could see a king in David. We know that once David takes out Goliath, everybody's impressed with David. But it doesn't say that anybody saw a king in him. I think everybody assumed that Jonathan was going to be king. Even Saul was impressed with him. We know that Saul wouldn't let David go home. He made him move into the palace. He gives him honor and he gives him rank and he gives him responsibility and he promotes him uh, within, the, within the armies and everything else. But he didn't see a king in him. And we know that everything that Saul did for David, everything Saul did for David was simply to further his own agenda. But look at Jonathan. Jonathan sees something more. And if you go to chapter 18 in verses 3 through 4, Here's, look at what this says. It says, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took the robe off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Guys, the first thing that it says there, he took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. Guys, I don't believe that Jonathan was giving David just any robe. I don't believe it was his backup bathrobe or, or something like that. I believe, many theologians believe that this was his royal priestly robe. That he, I'm sorry, royal, his royal kingly princely robe that he took off and that he gave to David. And this would be a huge deal. It's believed that this was signifying that Jonathan recognizes David as the next king, not he himself. Despite this, Jonathan loves David, and he befriends him, and we know that he even helps him. And here's the thing. We, we all need somebody like Jonathan in our lives. We all need somebody who can look at us, and they can see the potential in us, and they can see God's plan in us. Even when we can't see it ourselves, because sometimes you know as well as I do, we, we can't see what... God has for us. We can't see it within ourselves, but we all need somebody who can. And not just somebody who can see it, but somebody who's willing to come to us and to help draw that out, to draw the potential out, to draw God's plan out of our lives. Thank God for Jonathan. We all need a friend like Jonathan along the path of life. So David has been anointed king, but he has not been inaugurated king. 14 years go by. And people do not see a king in David. After 14 years, he would finally be inaugurated. But we know that 14 years was a pretty uh, interesting period. So number one, others did not see David with the potential of a king. Secondly, number two, and guys, this is encouraging to me. Number two, David was far from perfect, but his heart was tender toward God. David was far from perfect, but his heart was tender toward God. This is huge to me because I think many times we see David as larger than life. We see him as the greatest king of Israel. We see all these things that he did, what all God used him to do. But we know that he was far from perfect. And, and, and we, know, we know some of his indiscretions. We'll probably next week uh, in chapter 12, we'll probably talk about one of his greatest indiscretions that we all know about. 
But I want to talk for a few minutes about one of the lesser known periods of time where David seriously messed up and it cost him. It was a high price. And this actually is not mentioned in the story, but I want us to go into this for just a few minutes. And um, um, so anyway, we know this 14-year period goes by between the time that he's anointed and the time that he's inaugurated. And from the time that he slew Goliath, David is loved and respected uh, by pretty much everybody. And we know that Saul, King Saul, his son Jonathan, becomes his best friend. One of King Saul's daughters becomes his wife. David is living uh, at the palace. He is dining at the king's table. He becomes King Saul's greatest warrior. And, and the Bible says that he becomes the captain of the king's personal bodyguard. He gets pretty doggone close to King Saul. Now, we talked about Saul last week. There's a problem here. The problem is that Saul is arrogant and he is crazy insecure. And he gets, starts getting jealous of David and he gets more and more jealous. We know that the Bible says that he intentionally starts sending David out on these risky missions, hoping that he'll get killed in battle. But, but the Lord is with David. David would come back victorious every time, and the people would just love him every more. It backfired on Saul every time he tried it. So Saul's own children love David to the point that they're warning David. They're like his spy in the palace. They're warning him whenever King Saul's temper would flare up. They're sending him warnings and saying, oh, you may want to stay away from Dad for a little while. But we know that eventually things cross a line, and things get really bad. And we know that eventually Saul decides that David has to die. And we're going to look at that in chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 31. 1 Samuel 20, verse 31. And this is Saul, King Saul, speaking to his son Jonathan. He says, As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now bring him to me, for he must die. So Saul is basically saying to Jonathan, I've had enough. He's starting to recognize that David is gaining in, in love and respect in, of, of the people. And he's recognizing that David could end up being a king. He's starting to see it now. And he's afraid that his son Jonathan won't get it. So that's why he says, neither you nor your kingdom will be established as long as David lives. He's going to end up being king if we don't do something about it. So we've got to kill him. Well, again, this backfires on Saul because what does Jonathan do is he sends word to David and he says, you got to get out of here. He says, you got to flee. As a matter of fact, he says, you better get out of the country because he said, my dad is coming. The king is coming. Troops are coming and they are going to hunt you down and they are going to kill you. So what does David do? Like most of us. <laughs> He ran. He, he, he picked up and he took off. He didn't take anything with him. He just fled in panic. And in this situation, I love it, and it's why I included in this message, because I think that it's one of the couple of places in Scripture that we truly see the humanity of, uh, of David in the midst of this. David was a man after God's own heart, and we talk about that a lot, but he was also a human being. He was not larger than life. He was a normal human being who walked through things just like we do. And Sean and I were watching a series by Andy Stanley uh, a week or two ago, and he mentions this period in David's life, and he mentions three emotions that David would have experienced during this time. Three emotions. He mentions, number one, was anger. Secondly, was isolation. And thirdly, was fear. Anger, isolation, and fear. So think about it. Think, think about anger, okay? David's sitting here. He's on the run. He's going, what in the world? I've done all the, I, I took out the giant. I, I moved away from my family. I moved into the palace like the king said. I've done everything he's asked me to do. I've gone. I've won every battle that he sent me on. I've obeyed his every word. I've served this nation with my life. I've put my life at risk. And this is how I get repaid. Isn't it how we would respond? Anger. Think about isolation. We know from history that David generally traveled with a thousand elite troops. This is, think about his position, his rank in, in the armies. He had about a thousand, he had an entourage of a thousand elite troops wherever he went. 
Now he's all alone. Maybe for the first time since he was a shepherd on the, in the hills outside of Bethlehem, he is all alone. So imagine how he suddenly feels this isolation. And lastly, think about fear. The king, his father-in-law, is coming with all these troops to hunt him down. And what do anger, isolation, and fear lead to? They lead to panic. They lead to panic. And that's what David does. That's what we see in this moment is he panics and he runs for his life. So in 1 Samuel 21, it says that he goes to Ahimelech, the high priest at the tabernacle. He's, he's in the, this little town called Nob. It was the town of, uh, of the priests. And it was near Jerusalem. Now, uh, now Jerusalem, wasn't, Jerusalem actually wasn't part of Israel up to this point. But Nob was the town of the priests near Jerusalem. And so that's where David goes. He goes to Ahimelech, which is probably where the tabernacle was. And he goes to Ahimelech. And you think maybe, maybe he's going... Maybe he's going to worship and seek the Lord. Maybe he's going to, to, to get some direction and whatever else it may be. But, but we don't see any indication of that. If we look at verse chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, here's what David says. David went to Nob, the town of Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And it says, Ahimelech trembled when he met him. I wonder why in the world would he do that? Ahimelech knows David. And he says, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered Ahimelech the priest and said, the king sent me on a mission. The king has sent me on a mission. He's running from the king, right? The king has sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now, firstly, why did Ahimelech tremble when he runs into David, when David comes. And I, I think he looks at David, he sees David, he sees King Saul's right-hand man. He sees the great warrior of Israel, and here he is all alone in the middle of nowhere. And remember, David has been on the run, so he's probably, he's probably dirty and sweaty and smelly. And we know that he asks for food. This is a guy who lives in the king's palace, is the warrior, the champion of Israel, the great David. So he asked David, why are you here? Where are your men? And so we know out of fear, David lies to the high priest of God right here. And he says, I mean, it, just, just look back at the verse. He says, um, I, I'm, on a secret, I'm on a secret mission for the king. Uh, and I, I can't tell you about it. I'd have to kill you, right? And, and oh, where are my men? Oh, I, I, told them to, I told them to go on ahead and meet me at a certain place somewhere, a, a place out there somewhere. And so he's panicking, and he's lying to the high priest of God. And we know that this lie that he tells right here in this moment, this lie would have terrible consequences. He would go on probably to regret this for the rest of his life. We know that David goes on to ask Ahimelech for food, and all they have is the, is the bread for the priests, and David takes it. He takes the bread for, that belongs to the priests. And, uh, and then David asks for a weapon. He's asking the high priest of God at the tabernacle, are you armed? You got a weapon? What in the world? And actually, he claims, if you read a couple verses down, he claims that the secret mission that he's on for the king was so urgent that he left and that he forgot his sword. He's getting in deep in the lies right here. So the priest tells him, no, we, we don't have weapons here. Um, and then he says, well, actually, he says there's one. And he said, believe it or not, we've got the sword of Goliath stored here. And what a crazy coincidence. I would think that this would be the, the very sword of the giant that God used David to slay for Israel. The very, that very sword is here in this place, in that moment. And I would think this would be a wake-up call for David. Surely, knowing the sword of Goliath was there, seeing that sword, you would think it would make him, it would remind him of what God had done, you would think it would remind him of the, how he had been anointed and, and that God had used him to slay the lion and the bear and the giant and all these things. You know what David does? He grabs the bread and the sword and he keeps running. He takes off again. Not just that. If you go down to verse 10, you know where he goes? He goes to the Philistines' territory. The enemy. Sworn enemies of Israel. Not just that, but he goes to the Philistine city of Gath. Do we know who came from the city of Gath? Goliath. And David's carrying his sword. Their slain warrior. What in the world is this guy doing? He's panicking. He's panicking. And it says that he goes to the king of Gath. 
and he's seeking protection from Saul. Now, if you can just imagine uh, the king of Gath saying, what in the world is going on here? This is the mighty David. This is the one who slew our great warrior. This guy who's on the run, this guy who's now an enemy of Israel, this guy, this is the, this one that, this guy that they write songs about, this, this guy who's just walked into my house, this is the great David. And if you look in verse 12, it says that David hears the response of the king, what the king is saying, and it says that David was very much afraid. And we know the situation gets so bad that if you look at it in verse 13, it says that he starts acting like a madman. In the NIV, that's the actual word it uses. It says madman. He starts acting like a madman and he starts scraping at the doors with his fingernails, leaving marks. And it says that he was letting spit run down his beard so that he appeared to be insane. Look at it. It's there, guys. Seriously. He is panicking. Well, his insanity uh, act worked out because the, the king kicks him out of his, out of his place there uh, and says, get him out of here. And in chapter 22, verse 1, the next thing we do is we find David hiding in a cave. And uh, guys, we don't see any indication that he's trusting the Lord. We just see him panicking in this moment. Now, word quietly gets out that David is back in the area. And we know that um, Scripture tells us that his brothers and his father's family come to his aid there. They come to him there in the cave, and others start to gather with him at all, and with, with him as well. And this is where it seems that David starts to kind of get his head back on his shoulders again. He starts to kind of pull it back together. And look what happens next. In chapter 22, verse 3, it says, From there David went to Mizpah in Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? Well, this is kind of cool because, first of obviously his family was in trouble. So he, he makes sure that his father and his mother and their family, he makes sure they're taken care of in, in Moab. But he does that. He says, can they stay here until I figure out what the Lord wants to do? And this is the first time we see David seeking God in the middle of this dire situation. But here's the thing. David is panicking, but in verse 5, I'm sorry, he's, he's, it seems that he's seeking the Lord again. In verse 5, it says that he goes to the prophet Gad, and he gets direction from the Lord. And we know that from there, things begin to change for him. And so, like David, you and I are far from perfect, but what we know is that David's heart was responsive. He might would get off for just a little bit, but his heart was tender, and it was responsive toward the Lord. Now, there were still consequences for his actions, and I told you they were dire. Back to these lies that he told the high priest of God, we know that Saul was still upset at David, and he's still looking for him. Now, he hears that David is in the region, but he doesn't know where he is. And if you go down to verse 9, in verse 9 and 10, it says, But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So somebody just ratted David out. So we know that Saul calls for Ahimelech the high priest, along with the other priests that were there with him. He calls them and he says, basically he says, what have you done? What have you done? Why have you helped David? Ahimelech basically says, I don't know why you're asking me this. What are you talking about? I thought he was your right-hand guy. I thought, he was our, he thought, I thought he was our champion. I thought he was our, our great warrior. I thought he was the captain of your personal bodyguard. Plus, he told me he was on a secret mission for you. What have I done wrong? Guys, things go very badly for Ahimelech from this point. If you go down to verse 17... It says, then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. That, that's kind of cool. These guards that are standing there with the king, they said, oh, we don't care if you are the king. We're not striking down the priests of God. It says, then the king ordered Doeg, this guy who had just ratted David out. The king orders Doeg. He says, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Who wore the linen ephod? The priests. He struck down and killed 85 priests that day. And if you go to verse 19, it says, And he also put to the sword Nob. He killed everybody in the priestly town of Nob. Um, 
with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkey, and its sheep. Pretty tough. We know that one of Ahimelech's sons escapes, and he gets to where David is at, and he tells David everything that has happened. And, and I can only imagine David being uh, just broken because he recognizes that this was his fault. Anger, isolation, and fear led David to panic. Eighty-five priests were killed that day. And in verse 22, David turns to the son of Ahimelech and he says, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. And it says from that day forward that David took in the son of Ahimelech and protected him from there on out. Guys, David, like you and me, are far from perfect. Most of us have not done something that had this dire of consequences, but we have made the mistakes in our life just like David has. And like I said, we'll probably talk about his best well-known indiscretion next week, but we have made choices along the way that cost us. Just like we see right here, David makes some mistakes that were very costly, that cost lives. Um, here's the coolest thing. His bad decisions were not the end of his story. His bad decisions were not the end of his story. And your bad decisions are not the end of your story. We've all made them. We're far from perfect. But it doesn't have to be the end of your story. Some people's bad decisions take them out. And it's done. It doesn't have to be that way. Your bad decisions do not have to be the end of your story. We know that David went on, even after this, he went on to being a great king. We know that the nations could see the heart of God through David's leadership. We know that God blesses Israel throughout David's reign. As a matter of fact, God expanded the territory of Israel much further during David's reign. And we know that God's upper story was furthered. God's plan moved forward because David had a heart that could be used by God. A flawed man. A man that made some tough decisions sometimes. Some bad decisions. God was able to use him because his heart was tender toward him and turned toward him. Uh, last thing I want to mention in that before I go to the last point. We also notice that David always responds well in regards to Saul. Even when Saul was trying to kill him, David refused. He refused to lay a hand on Saul. We see that on a couple of occasions. He refused to speak a negative word against Saul. He knew that Saul was God's anointed king during that time. And so David honored that because he honored God. And again, it just further shows his heart toward the Lord. He was far from perfect, but his heart belonged to the Lord. So others did not see a king in David. Number two, David was far from perfect, but his heart was tender toward God. And the last thing I want to mention, real briefly, number three, David's life was a picture of the coming Messiah. God, David's life was a picture of the coming Messiah. Now we know that David was of the tribe of Judah, and he was born where? In the city of Bethlehem. Does that ring any bells to anybody? Ring any bells? Why is this important? Because the prophets had said that the the one, the anointed one, the one who was coming, the one who would make a way for us back to God, that he would be of the tribe of Judah and that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem. It's interesting, guys, because as we've been going through the Old Testament, every Old Testament story points to Jesus, that one person, the one who would deliver us from our sins. He was born of the tribe of Judah in the city of Bethlehem. And one more interesting thing in this in the Old Testament, the term anointed one usually referred to the reigning king of Israel. So you remember when the oil is running down David's head, he's just been anointed? David was the anointed one. It says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him when he was anointed. So you could say when he stood up to Goliath, it wasn't just David standing there. It was the spirit and the power of almighty God. He was the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the phrase anointed one usually referred to the reigning king of Israel. Now, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, the word that we translate anointed one is also translated Messiah. Guys, David was a Messiah in the lower story, but his life pointed to the Messiah with a capital M in the upper story. 
the one who would come, God in flesh, God incarnate, the one who would deliver us and free us from our sin. Every story in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Think about it for a minute. If we go back, think about the Exodus. We, we talked about the Exodus a couple months ago. The Exodus, the story of the Exodus points to Jesus as our Passover lamb. Think about Joshua. Joshua points to Jesus as our Savior. Actually, the name Joshua means Savior. Think about the book of Judges. The book of Judges points to Jesus as our deliverer. Remember, God would raise up a judge to deliver his people. Shauna spoke a couple weeks ago from the book of Ruth. Ruth points to Jesus as our redeemer, as we talked about Boaz as a kinsman redeemer. The Old Testament, every story in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And here's the good news. All these stories, all these people, they may have, they may have pointed to Jesus. They may have paved the way for him, but... About 1,000 years after King David died, Jesus would come. The one, he would come. And he would come as our Passover lamb, as our savior, as our deliverer, and as our redeemer. I'm going to invite the worship team up as I close. And I want to just say a couple things. How does, how does this relate to us in our life today as we look at David? And, and really, it's pretty simple. Number one, others did not see David with the potential of a king. Guys, there's plenty of people out there that are not going to see the potential in you. They're not going to see God's plan in your life. They're going to under, underestimate you. They're going to look at you and say, how in the world could God use somebody like that? Look, look what they've done. Look, why, did, why are they like that? They smell. <laughs> Whatever it may be, people are going to find a reason to underestimate you and not see potential in you and not see God's plan on your life. But here is the good news. As a Christ follower, guys, that term, the anointed one, refers to you. You are the anointed one. The spirit of the Lord is upon you. It's stronger in you than it was in King David. All of heaven is at your disposal. You're not just a son or a daughter of God. You are a co-heir of Christ. And God can use you to do things beyond your wildest dreams, beyond what you could ever imagine. Regardless of what anybody else sees, regardless of what, about, what anybody else thinks or says or does, God chooses you. You may seem like the least likely candidate. You may seem like the most inadequate person. But God chooses you. Doesn't matter what people say doesn't matter what they think. God chooses you. Our second point, David was far from perfect, but his heart was tender toward God. Guys, if you're like me, you have jacked it up in life before. <laughs> multiple, multiple times. Messed it up. We may not be perfect, but the thing is, all we have to do is turn our heart back toward the Lord. Allow our heart to be tender toward him and responsive to his voice and his command. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. When you, use, when you turn your heart toward God, he will use you to do things that you could have never imagined. When you turn your heart toward God and it's responsive and tender toward him, you will find yourself slaying the giants that held you back for years. You'll see yourself conquering mountains that stood in your way maybe for decades simply because you softened your heart and you became responsive toward the things of the Lord. Your bad decisions don't have to be the end of your story. One of the greatest gifts that God gave us was the ability to repent, to turn from our sin, and to turn our hearts back toward him. He is the father of the prodigal son with his arms open wide. He's waiting for us to turn back toward him. He is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. He chooses you. What will you do? You gonna worry about what others think? You gonna let your past hold you back? David didn't. And he's a great example for us. Regardless of how you may look or how you may feel, 
God chooses you and he wants, to, he wants to use you with your flaws and baggage and all. He wants to use you. He wants to use you. He chooses you. All you have to do is allow your heart to be tender and responsive and turn toward him. Right where you're at, I would just encourage you to just press in for just a moment. Close your eyes if that's what's best for you. And the first question I would ask is, is your heart turned toward God? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Guys, it's the first step. Without him, we're lost in our anger, in our isolation, in our fear. Without him, we live our life in a panic. And I know that some of you are watching, you've been there. You've experienced it. Guys, Jesus is the way out. He is the way of escape. He is the anointed one that came. And he paid the price for your sins and those past failures and those things that have, that have held you back for so long. That guilt and that shame that you felt that, is, that has kept you down. You don't have to live that way anymore. Jesus paid the price for it all. And we're going to pray a prayer together today. And if that's you, look, I don't know if you've given your life to Jesus before. It may be the first time. It may be the 20th time. But you know whether or not your heart is surrendered to him today. And I just encourage you right now, if that's you and you know you need to surrender your life to him, I encourage you just to pray a prayer right where you're at and just pray something like this. Just say, Father, Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus. I've tried doing this thing. I've tried living this life on my own. I've tried doing what I think is right, what I think is best. And I've been an utter failure every time. lost in my sin maybe I'm full of anger isolation fear, guilt, whatever it may be so today Jesus I give my life to you I recognize you as my sacrificial lamb I believe that you are the son of the living God and that you willingly gave your life for me that you went to that cross and you took my sin and my guilt and my shame you took it to the grave you paid the price for my judgment and today I accept that sacrifice as my own I repent of my sin I turn from my evil ways all those things in my life that are contrary to you I turn from them now and I choose to walk away from them Jesus be Lord of my life be my master, be my savior. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me. Be everything you've called me to be. Lord, I follow you all the days of my life. No looking back. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.